You know, a story is told of a 10-year-old boy who got baptized. After his baptism, there was a celebration at his home in which he received gifts from family for the special celebration and commemoration of that special day that took place in his life. One of the gifts he opened from his grandmother, he was hoping would be money, but it turned out to be a Bible. A 10-year-old boy rolled his eyes, said thank you, but not with great fervor, placed the Bible on the bookshelf and left it there. As he grew up and selfish decisions led him away from the Lord, life began to fall apart for him. Once he got to the very bottom of his life, he returned back to that bookshelf where he grabbed that Bible. He opened it up and began to read what Jesus had done for him. And right then and there, he got on his knees at his bed and gave his life to Christ. You see, what was better than a gift of gold or silver or money was that Bible. That Bible was a gift that was better than anything that could ever be currency or cash. That 10-year-old boy was me. I received that Bible, and that was God's means of bringing me to faith in Jesus. One of the good gifts that God gives to us is the gospel of his son crucified, buried, risen, ruling, and reigning on high. And those who trust in him receive a gift that is better than silver or gold. That is what we see in Acts chapter 3. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We're going through the books of Acts as a faith family in a sermon series entitled Sense. We are walking through this great book. It's taken us 15 messages to get through the first two chapters. So you can always go back and listen to the content on our website, gowestwood.org, or by downloading the Westwood app. In the first two chapters, we have seen Jesus commission his disciples, ascend back up into heaven, where he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. The disciples gathered and they prayed. The Lord raised up Matthias as the 12th disciple to replace Judas Iscariot. We see in Acts chapter 2 where the Spirit fell at Pentecost. Peter stands up, preaches the gospel. 3,000 come to faith in Christ and the early church is born. When we get to Acts chapter 3, Luke tells us what happens next. And in Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, the scripture says this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. 
So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. As we look at the transformation that took place in this man's life in Acts chapter 3, we see the kingdom of God is breaking through. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are getting a snapshot of that even greater reality. For indeed, in heaven, it is a place where there is total and complete healing that is physical and emotional and spiritual and mental, a total healing that takes place. Well, what's happening here is a snapshot where the kingdom of God is entering into this world. It's breaking through. It's bringing restoration where there was brokenness in this world. And even this event is pointing forward to a day when the kingdom of God is going to be realized in full. You see, there's coming a day in which pain will be no more. Suffering will be no more. Divorce will be no more. Bankruptcy will be no more. Cancer will be no more. Adultery will be no more. Lying and manipulation will be no more. We will be with the Lord and all of sin and death will be done away with once and for all. You see, the miracle uh, that's happening right here is significant. This is an actual historical event in which this man experiences a miracle out in public. And there's a transformation that takes place in his life. And this miracle is so significant that it reverberates all throughout Jerusalem. And as we're going to see throughout chapters 3 and 4, this one healing event led to a Mount Vesuvius eruption of both excitement and persecution in Jerusalem. You see, in Acts 3, we, we see an actual historical event that took place where this lame beggar's life has been radically changed by Jesus. And yet, his physical healing, it pictures the spiritual healing that we have experienced when we believed the gospel. You see, this story of this man's life is a mirror of what the gospel has done to you. I want you to notice this morning in the text what's happening here and how it pictures what Christ has done for us. I want you to see first in the text that once we were lame and we were desperate. Peter and John are headed to the temple in Jerusalem for three o'clock prayer time. And as they arrive, they come across this man who was physically lame. He's placed at the beautiful gate, which is on the eastern wall facing the Mount of Olives. Now, this was a dependent man. He was handicapped. He was unable. He was prevented from being able to walk. This is not like Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 4, who was dropped as a child. This man had been lame since birth. His entire life, he's been uh, been unable to walk, unable to run, unable to play with kids his own age. In fact, the text says that he was carried to the temple each day. He was dependent upon others. Have you ever been physically dependent upon someone else? Maybe you've gone through a physical uh, suffering or you've gone through a surgery or you have a, a chronic pain that you continually have to deal with and you are dependent upon another. It's a humbling reality. 
It's difficult when you go through a physical ailment and you are dependent upon another person to care for you. Well, that is this man's life in which he continually is dependent upon others. Well, not only is he dependent, this man's desperate. He was situated at a high traffic location where he could scrape up some money in order to survive. And there he would sit day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, hoping that someone would drop him some loose change on their way to worship. He's a desperate beggar hoping for money to meet his worldly need. And you see, this is a picture of our spiritual condition before we came to know Christ. You see, you and I, we were spiritually lame, powerless, helpless, hopeless on our own, completely dependent upon someone else. And yet praise his name. For this man, months earlier, there was another, one who came through that beautiful gate riding on a donkey. And little did this man know that that one seated on the donkey is the one who would give him the power to be raised up and heal of his lameness. You see, there is another who comes and meets us right where we are in our brokenness, in our helplessness. Jesus is the one who draws near to us and changes us. Jesus is the one who's made a way for us to get up and walk with him. Jesus is the one who's changed our hearts. He is the one who has drawn us to himself. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Jesus is the one who has seen us in our helpless estate. When you and I were unable to help ourselves, Jesus came and rescued us. Outside of Christ, we were spiritually bankrupt and without help and without hope. You see, before you can be rescued, you have to first understand that you need to be rescued. You have to understand how weak and utterly dependent you are upon Christ. It's the person who still says, I got this. The person who says, I don't need a savior. It's the person who says, you know, I can figure this out on my own. I can pull up the bootstraps on my own salvation. You are in trouble. You are deceived. You and I must know how utterly weak we are before God. We are just like this man. But then something happened. Number two, then we looked and we were raised. As Peter and John are marching through the gate called beautiful, this man begs, he asks for money. Peter commanded his notice. He looked straight at him and said, look at us. Peter's demanding his attention. As a parent, you'll do this with your children in which you want their undivided attention. You'll say, I want you to listen to me with your eyes. Because you're, you're wanting them to pay attention because you have something to say. You have something they need to know. That's what's happening here. So this man looks at the two apostles, verse 5, and he's expecting a nice handout. He's expecting he's about to get paid. Peter tells him something else. Verse 6, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. 
In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I say to you, get up and walk. God has something better than money for this man. Possibly recalling this moment, Peter would tell the churches in Asia Minor in his first letter, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, church family, the blood of Jesus Christ is more precious than silver or gold. Do not waste your life chasing gold. Do not waste your years wanting more money or pursuing a bigger bank account or desiring more change in your pocket. God has something better. He's given you his son. The precious blood of Christ is better than all the riches in all the world. For it's the blood of Christ that has ransomed you. It has purchased your sin. It is the precious blood of Christ that is through which you are forgiven of all of your past and your shame. It's the blood of Christ that's through that you are adopted into the family of God. You're promised eternal life. Oh, behold, the precious blood of Christ. It's far more precious This is the greatest gift of all, the gift of Christ. And believer, hear me on this. If you have believed the gospel, you have been given something far better than money, far better than retirement, far better than physical health. You have been given Jesus. And he is the one who has raised you up. He is the one who stood you up on your feet. He is the one who is promising a future in which you will be raised up with all of the redeemed. That though physically you and I will be planted in the earth unless Christ returns, the blood of Christ has secured him one day calling your name and raising you up. This is where our hope is found. But did you notice in the text where the power comes from? The power doesn't come from Peter. The power does not come from John. The power does not come from the apostles. The power is found, verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ. There's power in the name of Jesus. He is the one who changes. He is the one who transforms you. He is the one worthy of all glory and honor. He is the one in which all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to. And yet, y'all, let's keep in mind, this healing that's taken place is temporary. See, eventually, this man, he's going to die. And eventually, unless Jesus returns, so are you. There's a greater healing that has to take place for this man and for us. And as we're going to see next week, this, this healing that is greater is a catapult to revival that's going to heal thousands of people. You see, this man's healing was a road sign pointing to Jesus. So what did Peter and John tell this man to do? Look. Look. Look away from yourself. Look away from your money. Look away from your circumstances. Look away from your sin. And look unto Christ. You see, God wants this man's undivided attention. And may I say to you, God wants your undivided attention. Look away from yourself. Look away from your money. Look away from your circumstances and look unto Christ. Take your eyes off of yourself. Stop thinking of yourself first and look unto Jesus. Put your eyes upon him. 
January 1850, 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon found himself walking through a small town in England on a blustery, terrible snowstorm. And he found a Methodist church that had an open door that day, and it was there that he went inside hoping to find some relief from the storm. But it was by divine providence that God sent that storm and sent him into that church, for it was there he would experience the Savior. Now, I rarely read to you as a congregation, but I love this story so much, I feel like it's worth reading to you. If you will humor me for just a moment, Spurgeon wrote these words about that fateful day. He wrote, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I'd heard of the primitive Methodists how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Aye, he said in his Essex. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye, we say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me underneath the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. 
Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only primitive Methodists could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I'd been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. That happy day when I found the Savior, I learned to cling to his dear feet. It was a day never to be forgotten by me. I listened to the word of God and that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. I can testify that the joy of that day was utterly indescribable. I could have leaped. I could have danced. There was no expression, however fanatical, which would have been out of keeping with the joy of that hour. Many days of Christian experience have passed since then, but there has never been one which has had the full exhilaration, the sparkling delight which that first day had. I thought I could have sprung from my seat in which I sat and have called out with the wildest of the Methodist brethren, I am forgiven, I am forgiven, a monument of grace, a sinner saved by blood. My spirit saw its chains broken to pieces. I felt that I was an emancipated soul, an heir of heaven, a forgiven one, accepted in Jesus Christ. Between half past 10 o'clock when I entered the chapel and half past 12 When I was back at home, what a change had taken place in me. Simply by looking to Jesus, I had been delivered from despair and was brought into such a joyous state of mind that when they saw me at home, they said to me, something wonderful has happened to you. And I was eager to tell them all about it. Oh, there was joy in the household that day when all heard that the eldest son had found the Savior and knew himself to be forgiven. Oh, today that you would look. Look unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Take your eyes off of yourself. Take your eyes off of your sin. Take your eyes off of your money. Take your eyes off of your circumstances and look unto him. And you shall be saved. All the ends of the earth by looking unto Christ. That's what Peter and John are telling this man. Look, pay attention. And then what happens? Verse seven. The apostles took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles became strong. No wobbling, no toddling, no stumbling. This man, for the first time in his life, gets to use his leg and he, legs, and he is immediately healed. And may I say to you, so it is with you. The moment you believe the gospel, the moment you look unto Christ by faith, you are healed. 
God has washed away your sin. He's made you brand new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. God has taken out the heart of stone. He's given you a heart of flesh. God transforms you from the inside out. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel changes everything about you. And may I say to you, because of you looking at Jesus through your faith in Christ on the last day, you will rise. You will go with all of the saints and all of the redeemed. We will gather at the throne and we will worship at his feet. We will dance and sing and celebrate all that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has done for us. This is the gospel that we rally around. This is the gospel that changes everything about us. You see, we look unto Christ and we experience new life. You see, once we were lame and we were desperate, then we looked and we were raised. Then thirdly, now we worship and we witness. The man jumped up and started to walk. He enters into the temple with the disciples. And what's he doing? Verse 8, walking, leaping, praising God. This man could not contain his excitement. Okay, he's finally been healed. His entire life, he's been having to be dragged around by other people. He's now able to stand up on his own legs. He's rejoicing. He's jumping. He's celebrating. Oh, look what has happened to me. And beloved, that is what has happened to you. You've been raised with Christ. You once were dead, but now you're alive. You once were in the kingdom of darkness. Now you're in the kingdom of his beloved son. You went from being outside of Christ to being in Christ. You once were lost and now you're found. You were headed for hell. Now you have heaven. We see when the gospel changes you, it compels you to leap, to shout for joy, to celebrate the Lord. Is there anybody in here today? Y'all, this should fire us up more than a national championship, y'all. You've been raised. The worst possible thing that could ever happen to you has already happened to Jesus. It's no longer on you. It was placed on him at Calvary. Now you're washed. You're forgiven. You're clean. You're a saint. You are one with the Father through his Son. He changes everything. And it compels you to do what this man's doing, to leap for joy to celebrate the experience of salvation. Oh, what a wonderful gift. If you don't find yourself leaping for joy, maybe you don't know Jesus. And I say to you, would you look unto Christ? Know how broken you are outside of Jesus, and yet his grace is greater than all of your sin. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter the the posture of your heart, the attitudes of selfishness and pride and arrogance and greed and racism, they can be nailed to Jesus and you bear them no more. This is what we are rallying around as followers of Christ. And y'all, we got a message to preach. We have something to tell the nations and our neighbors, the good news of Jesus and what he has done for us. This is what happens here. This man, he's so transformed that the people take notice. Look at verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and to beg. You see, when people see that your life has been changed by Jesus, they sit up and take, take, take notice. They're like, something's different about you. What has happened? 
You're a different dude. You think differently. You're talking differently. What has happened to you? The answer is Jesus. He's changed my life. I'm not who I used to be. I went from down in the gutter. Now my feet are standing upon rock. When trial and difficulty comes, I've got joy. Because I can take joy when I face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of my faith develops perseverance. I'm someone who's been transformed by the nature of Christ. I haven't arrived yet. Perfection isn't mine, but I'm pursuing it. And at the resurrection, I will be perfected. That's what's coming for me. But until that day, I'm like the Dow Jones. I'm headed up in the right direction, up and to the right. Lots of peaks, lots of valleys, but overall trajectory, I'm headed towards Christ. I'm becoming more and more like him. This is what Jesus does. And man, I'm not sure about you, but man, this fires me up. And do you see what happens with it? It leads to evangelism. Verse 10. They were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. Question, do people look at you with awe and astonishment? Like, whoa, what has happened to you? You're different. You've changed. Well, here's your impact point. Here's my challenge to our church today. Let's astonish the world with the story of what Jesus has done in your life. Let's shock the world. Let's make people sit up and take notice. Ooh, there's something different about you. That when you're sitting in algebra class, people see the way that you think and talk. Like, well, there's something different about you, bro. When you're sitting in the staff meeting, you're one who has a countenance that's resting in Christ. When you stand before the doctor who says you have cancer and you have confidence in Jesus because your feet are planted upon a rock, that you can have joy in the midst of sorrow, you can have exhilaration in the midst of sadness because you have Christ. And let the world around us take notice. I love how D.T. Niles said it. He says, evangelism is just one beggar telling another where to find bread. For those of you gathered in this room, on your way in were these styrofoam balls. If you wouldn't mind pulling that out. Since January, we as a faith family have been praying for unbelievers, people in our lives, friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, teammates. We want to see them come to know Christ. Many of their names have been on the walls, and we've been praying for them. What I would like to do now is for you to take some time to write on this styrofoam, styrofoam ball the initials or names of unbelievers in your life that you are personally going to take responsibility for sharing the gospel with. I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, pull out a pen. You can do it now. I'm going to invite you to begin writing down initials. It can be first names. These are people in your life who don't know Jesus. And by you writing their name down, you're saying, I am going to be sharing the gospel with this person. I'm going to take responsibility. I want it to be upon me. You see, if it's just one guy doing it, it can only go so far. But if we have a church of thousands of preachers, who are going out to the highways and the byways, 
that are even going to places like city gates and we're telling people about Jesus, think of the impact our church can have for the kingdom. Think of the impact you get to have for the kingdom when you say, I'm going to take responsibility for these people right here. They're mine. I'm going after them. I've been praying for them for months. I've been yearning, seeking the Lord. God, please open their hearts and their minds to believe. And so now, I'm going to take responsibility for sharing the gospel with them. And the ball is now in your courts. You're going to take this home, and you can place it wherever you'd like, but it's a reminder of the mission that God has entrusted to you to share the gospel and to tell people about Jesus because he is the one who is far better than silver and gold.